Hey, this is Bree, and thanks for listening to Be Human, a podcast where Kevin and I discuss topics around mental health, getting more out of life, and all the intricacies that come with being human. This week's episode, y'all, is our first guest episode. So excited to share this with you all. Kevin interviewed a friend from Ireland, Ogie Hollywood, and his story is so phenomenal. So make sure that you listen to both parts. So we'll put the interview out, part one, part two. And this week's episode, they dive into what it means to be human when you have to navigate and contend with the choices that your parents make. It's a really good story. Make sure you listen all the way through and come back next week for part two. So without further ado, let's meet Ogie Hollywood. My name is uh, Ogie Hollywood, a bit of a, an interesting and unusual name to start things off with. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Ogie is a is an yeah, it's an Irish name with some version of young in there somehow. I'm not sure where my mom and dad pulled it out of, but uh, it's the one that, that I've stuck with for life. Um, in terms of yeah, look at the minute, I'm I'm working for for a large tech company in sales. Have done for the last four or five years. Studied economics and finance in Galway. Um, I'm originally from from Westmead in Ireland, and yeah, I guess in in, in terms of that's where I'm at today. Um, who I am and my story probably goes quite a, quite a bit beyond that. I think. Everyone sees the, the the kind of what we like to present to the world in terms of who we are today, and whether that's looking at a LinkedIn profile or an Instagram profile, and we kind of mm-hmm. have a probably a perception of who someone is and, and how they present themselves. And I think you know I probably come across as quite a confident guy, uh, well presentable, well dressed, um, and whatnot. And yeah, working in a, in, a, in a corporate job, um, they probably wouldn't have much of an idea as to, I guess, where I came from or my background. And I think maybe. Mm. We might go into some of that today and, and maybe some of the, the, the challenges along the way to, to, to get to where I am today and by no means have things figured out in any sense. I think uh, as all of us are just trying to kind of get along in life and, and figure things out as we go along um, and, and take lessons and, and learning from from, uh, from all the experiences that we go through on a day to day. But, you yeah, know, I, I guess in terms of my my earlier years, or kind of maybe my story is maybe what is different than, than, than maybe what some people would experience growing up is, my, I guess my parents kind of rebelled against society whenever they were in their kind of early 20s and, you know, in some ways kind of distanced themselves from society and kind of wanted to, you know, they, they were both uh, grew up in Northern Ireland where there was the heart of the troubles. Um, mm-hmm. And if you're familiar with that, like, you know, very severe civil war, a lot of unrest, um, a large political divide, a large religious divide between Catholic and Protestants. And they just really disagreed with the whole thing that was going on the separation mm-hmm. the divide in people and you know in, in a lot of ways they you know they were you know both amazingly um you know compassionate people and, and really cared for individuals and wanted to see kind of unity and people coming together to support one another and as a result of that they didn't want to be in northern Ireland they didn't want to be around the troubles and they kind of both ran away from home um in their late teens wow and yeah, kind of like you know, but both came from from quite normal families. Like my mum came from a, a hard working class family. My my granddad worked in a, in a carpet factory, um, and then later kind of drove kind of uh, drove lorries and, and kind of worked in, in kind of delivery services. My dad's family were kind of a well to do middle class family. Granddad was an entrepreneur. Granny was a nurse. Um, you know, both you know well to do families, kind of mm-hmm. hard working families, and 
I guess they just kind of were frustrated by the tension and the divides that were happening within kind of the society as a, as a result of, of the kind of political unrest within that, that location. And they just kind of, yeah, I guess, you know, went to live uh, a bit of a different life. You know, in reality, my parents and their friends and the community that they lived in would have been very, very frowned upon mm-hmm. by people in the local communities where they were living. Oh, sure. like it was and undoubtedly, like, you know, people didn't want them to be there. They were seen as a nuisance in any sense mm-hmm. um, at, at the best of times. And, you know, that's probably, I guess, where a lot of my shame came from. It's like, I don't want to, I didn't want to be associated with that. So as, as I grew up, mm-hmm. I wanted as little as possible for people to think of me in that way in any in any regard, because I was embarrassed and ashamed about it, because I've I seen it as negative. And, you know, if I think back to where I'm at today, if I see people living that way, I might question it. And I'd be like, mm, is that the best thing you should be doing for your children? Is that the best thing you should be doing for yourself? Is it? whatever and, and you know and, and that's that's more so my maturity and trying to understand where i want to be or where i want my life to go mm-hmm. um but yeah like and, and then look i guess in terms of one of the challenging things with that is and i think a therapist put it to me very well like and I, i've been through therapy numerous times to both process some of those things through my childhood to process some things i've gone through personally um and i kind of mentioned the whole area of like where i grew up and, and, and the challenges that that brought with it and you know he put it to me that in a sense of like there's only so long that you can run from society before it catches up with you. Mm. Um, and that was, I guess, how he kind of framed the situation, my parents' situation. It was like, you know, they, they kind of ran from society and tried to to distance themselves from it, kind of accepting that they had to fit into it at some stages. And ultimately, it caught up with them. Um, mm-hmm. And when it caught up with them, you know, there's numerous challenges that occur, but that was, you know, my parents uh, separated. Um, and within about a year of their separation, my dad actually quite sadly committed suicide um, and he had lived with mental health disorder. He had bipolar disorder. And, you know, now there's a lot of research to try and understand whether that's a generic, a genetic disorder or whether it's an environmentally, um, you know, and a disorder that can be kind of brought on by environment. And the studies now kind of will say it's more of a 50, 50. Um, so there's definitely mm-hmm. genetic dispositions to, to, to such disorders as, as bipolar, but there's also a large factor which comes into play in the environment and choices that, that someone makes and the people they surround themselves with. And, you know, I would be very adamant, and this is my opinion, as opposed to fact that his lifestyle choices in his early, early to, to late twenties definitely had an influence over, over his mental health. Um, and, you know, in some ways, it's it's very sad to think that it got to a stage where he didn't see another out. He didn't see another option to kind of, you know, improve himself or progress himself or to to overcome or or not even overcome, but to more so live with the disorder that he had. And he thought that the only way out was was to take his own life. And I was, you know, I was about three, yeah, three years of age whenever he committed suicide. In in um, and that you know, obviously, as a as a young kid, I didn't really know what was going on. You know, I didn't I didn't really notice. Uh, you're too young to really comprehend what someone passing away even even really means and i think one of the kind of my earliest memories is actually at his funeral um where i remember just running around the graveyard laughing and playing because i didn't know what was happening um and i just remember seeing you know the, the tears running down everyone else's faces and, and, and people being completely distraught with sadness and i was too young to to really understand what had happened or, or what was happening and obviously not long afterwards i came to understand that my dad was no longer with us on the planet and and, and he'd he'd passed away and mm. you know and he probably a long time after that kind of came to understand what what suicide meant or that, that you know how he had died or how he passed away um and you know that obviously brings a lot of challenges with it itself um in terms of processing that and dealing with that as a kid growing up and also it meant my mom was left with with four kids um as a, as a single parent to raise and 
you know, I can only imagine how challenging that was for her. And, you know, look at where I am now in my life. I, you know, she was a similar age to me um, whenever she was, you know, in a situation with, with four young kids um, and, and was widowed. So, you know, and she's, she's a, an amazingly strong woman and one of the strongest people you'd ever meet. And, and it's incredible to see, you know, how positive she has been through her life and, and how supportive she's been to all of us. And she's always given us everything that we ever could have needed, even though she never had much because, you know, she simply didn't have, have a chance to kind of pursue her own career, to pursue her own ambitions and own desires because she simply was raising four kids on her own um, at, a, at a quite a young age, which meant that we were, whenever we kind of did integrate back towards kind of society, we were on, you know, she luckily that we lived in Ireland to be very honest because it's one of the only countries where there is such a strong uh, support system for for single mums um, you know she would have got a lot of government aid we had rent allowance and then we later moved into a council house and she would have had you know child benefit services and um, and support money from the from the government in order to to put food on the table and to, and to make sure that we were we were fed and make sure that we were able to you know afford our school books and our uniforms and, and go through education and and yeah it's you know it's it's um it's interesting to kind of what I often reflect on in, in that whole situation is like all those experiences that they went through, which, which put us in a situation are, you know, they're, they're a lot to do with, with challenging circumstances. And obviously, you know, no one could foresee the circumstances of, 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 of a, of a parent taking their own life and, and what kind of that leaves behind in, in, in the room of it. But it's more so finding yourself in, um, in a social, in a challenged socioeconomic background, um, and trying to then, I guess, how that influences you as you grow up in terms of the choices that you make and the, the type of person that you begin to become, because you know, ultimately your environment and, and what you're surrounded by is is a large part of of kind of who you become and who you try mm-hmm. to be. So it's yeah, lots of lots of different kind of interesting things in my early years that that I guess have definitely shaped me in lots of ways uh, to where I am today. Um, I mean, lots of lots yeah. of challenges, but also lots of positive things. Yeah, geez, like it's it's a testament to your mom like what an incredible person you've turned out to be and all that you've like accomplished in life it really is that's that's incredible because like the easy way out for a lot of people would be ah well look at my life you know i can just become you know not amount to nothing and that's okay because i have this i have so many reasons not to become something and and fulfill my uh, full potential you know like there's so many options for you to choose from to say, uh, I'm not going to fulfill my potential because of this, this, and this, you know what I mean? And you've like, you're just like, you're an incredible human being, but you're also obviously being so successful in your professional career and throughout life. So, I mean, it's a, it's a serious testament to your mom and, and, and yourself for, for how you've turned out. So tell her I said, congrats. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I look, Kevin, very, very kind words. And look, it's very humbling. I think, you know, in, we look at success and success and whatever it might mean. Like for me, success is, is now really trying to be, be at ease with myself and be much more content and happy as a person because I spent a lot of my life pursuing other people's goals and other people's agendas. And like, you know, if you look at, my like teen years as such, that was, I guess, whenever I had the most, I would say, rebellious period of my life of trying to to distance myself so far from what it came through. And it was just like, mm. I needed, I, I, I craved so much to be normal. Like I, I just, I remember, which is strange as a kid, you know, you shouldn't, everyone obviously wants to fit in, right? Everyone wants to fit in. They want to be the cool kid. They want to play sports. They want to, you know, get the good looking girls in school, whatever it might be, all these things that we kind of traditionally crave. But for me, it was more so it was like, I just want to be normal. I just want to have 
a normal background. I want to have, mm. you know, a mom and dad at home who, you know, have their own house and their own security. It was all, I always, you know, I seen all these kids in school and I used to think everyone else's lives look so perfect. You know, they both mm-hmm. had two parents at home. They were working normal jobs. You know, they, they were from the area they'd grown up there, et cetera. And I just always felt like a complete outsider. And, and as a result of that, I would kind of, you know, try and, I guess just trying by, by trying to fit in, you would then adopt whatever anyone else wanted you to do. So if, mm-hmm. if something was cool that week, I'd be trying to do it. Um, you know, it was like if for me, it was like okay, jumped into playing football. I thought that was great, great fun for a few years. You know, a good way to fit in, meet meet people. And then when it came to oh, going out and partying is 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 how you're how you're cool whenever you're 16. I was mm-hmm. like, oh great, I'm I'm going to go out and party. Um, and you know that 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 pursuit in lots of ways put me in lots of lots of challenging environments because as you said, around like what direction you go in life can, you know, there's lots of different directions you can go. And, and you know, also you can go down a very, very bad direction and turn it around as well, which I think in, in a lot of cases is, is kind of where I went. Because I look back to like my early teens, like I was, I never had any problems as a kid, to be honest. Like I was, I, I fitted in quite well in school. I, I was quite popular, had a good few mates. Like it was, I never really struggled in school, to be honest. Um, like I was always good at sports and, and it was more so whenever I, whenever I started to get a little bit older and to be honest, like started drinking more and started kind of distancing myself from sport, which had been a really good influence. I used to play a lot of soccer, a lot of Gaelic football. Um, and it was more when I was like 16 or 17 years of age that I kind of came a bit too cool for that. You know, I was like, Oh, didn't want to go to train anymore. I was going to go out with the lads or I was going to go and do something different. You know, the weekend was going, going booze and, and, and it wasn't going to a match on a Sunday morning. It was, yeah. and that was when I think my life really took a bit of a flip and it was like very quickly then, and I wouldn't say a, a massively negative spiral, right? You know what I mean? I still held myself together. I achieved very good in my final final grades in school. I, I went to college, but it was more so the habits and routines that I'd started to pick up. Um, and, and a lot of that's due to, you know, the environment that you're surrounding yourself in and, and, and what everyone else is doing around you. And it, it wasn't like it was dissimilar to, to, to a lot of teenage guys uh, my age in, in Ireland. You know, people drinking an awful lot. Um, a lot of guys, you know, you start smoke, smoking weed. They say, oh, it's just a done thing. Everyone thinks it's cool. You're like, oh, yeah, that's kind of what everyone does. And it was only slowly that like, I started to realize that my group started to kind of maybe drift a little bit away from a lot of the guys who had played sports to a lot of the girls that would have been friends with in school who would have been maybe from better backgrounds. And I think mm-hmm. this was the only kind of stage that I started to realize a little bit around like, oh, why is it? And I kind of always was quite social with lots of different groups. I always connected with different people. I was always just naturally kind of able to speak to people in, in, on their own level um, no matter where they came from mm-hmm. but I also naturally was drawn towards people who were more like me and more like my background or whatever that might be and as a result of that I was living in a council estate there was a lot of negative influences around me in, in that environment um, and yeah I fell into a lot of bad habits and routines to be honest and it was you know it was, that's kind of I guess where my life started to kind of flip in a bit of a negative way um, mm. and even though I was still doing well academically, I'd, I kind of got into college. I was doing well in college. Um, I, you know, I was probably still repressing a lot of the challenges that were like deeply thick ingrained within me. You know, a lot of the stuff that I'd never really processed around my dad's suicide, mm-hmm. a lot of stuff I'd never really processed around my childhood and where I came from and accepting that. Um, and, you know, another challenge along the way. And, and my way of kind of dealing with that was to just to go and get smashed at the weekend and then to, to repress any kind of feelings or emotions um, by being stoned the rest of the time. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, this is, you know, and I often sugarcoat this side of my story, to be honest, because, you know, I talk on, say, some public forums, whether that's in a workplace or whether it's on a, a, you know, going into university to speak about mental health and well-being. And I'm quite open with with the struggles that I went through. 
but I probably haven't been as open with what you know what resulted in a lot of those struggles coming about. And I think it's quite important to go to, to discuss this in, in not in detail, but just to give people an understanding as to how negative um, these types of behaviors can be um, and how negative they can be towards your mental health. And, mm-hmm. you know, whether I would argue that, you know, I would have never had any issues if I hadn't have, have gone down that path, that's, you know, I'll never know because it, it simply is the way that I went. Um, mm-hmm. There's definitely some challenges that I had and maybe some predispositions towards mental health challenges. But I would say more so than anything, it was due to the the, the type of lifestyle that I began to live in my early 20s. And, you know, we're, I remember what we went to, uh, I went, I moved to to Spain for, for a summer in, uh, in university and just partied straight for three months, like literally went to a, a party resort. Everything was accessible. Everything was easy. There was mm-hmm. parties every night of the week. I worked in a bar, drank every day, went on the sesh every day. And you realize at the time that was like, oh, this is great fun. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm the man about town here in this, in this resort. You're chatting to people every day. Everyone knows it's you. It's a you're, dream you're, for a lot of people. Lad. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, literally. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, and you know, it's, it's only whenever you come home from that and you start to realize, oh man, I'm in a bit of a bad place here. Jesus, I'm trying to pull myself out of a bit of a hole. And I guess probably started to, to experience maybe, yeah, some forms of kind of low moods and, and, and depressive kind of thoughts at, at that stage. And it was then, um, I guess, you know, your, your whole topic around like be human and maybe looking at like your struggles. My main struggles kind of occurred around this, this stage of my life. So it was around, yeah, 19, 20, 21. And it was, I went to, I went back to Spain a second year. First year was like, yeah, great fun. Let's go back. Let's do it all again. And I remember feeling very, very uneasy to be honest before going. And I kind of, I, I got myself in quite a good place uh, before going that year. And I just had to spend three or four months really putting my head down in college. I kind of started to do quite well in, in, in my exams, um, was training quite a bit, kind of doing quite well in in, in, um, in that sense, kind of getting fitter, healthier. And I'd actually kind of stopped, you know, drinking as much. I'd, I'd really cut down on on, on smoking and, and, and a lot of this kind of substance abuse that I had put myself through the, the prior year. Um, and it was kind of this uneasy feeling of like, ah, uh, don't know if this is the right thing you should be doing for yourself, mate. You know, and and, and that kind of whether you're kind of referred to as your, your your gut feeling or whatever you want to call it, but there was something within me that was kind of conflicting and kind of saying, yeah, this is not a good idea. And you're you're maybe not maybe not the best thing to do, maybe not the best environment to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had committed. I'd booked flights and I was going with one of my mates, a good friend of mine, and we're like, yeah, look, let's just go for it. Let's go for it. It was good fun. We'll do it again. Um, and it very very quickly spiraled very negatively. And and I I look at this as like you know, in some ways it was like something somewhere was telling me to stop and telling me that just to not go down this route because it's not going to end very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and within about two weeks of being in Spain, I literally arrived and just partied from day one. Like we, when I had a job lined up when I got there, but it wasn't starting for about a week. So we went, as most lads do on a holiday, you get there, you go on a bender and you go out to six in the morning, you wake up again at eight or nine, you go to the pool bar, get a few more drinks in, and keep going and, and and roll over until you can't roll over any longer essentially yeah and you know ultimately at the end of that about a week a week into that i just completely started to shut down um and i experienced what's known as a psychotic episode or, or a drug-induced psychotic episode um mm-hmm. and it's actually something that's quite common um it's not spoken about very often but i think it's roughly one in 100 people um will experience a psychotic episode in their life 
Yeah. And for people who smoke marijuana, who take narcotics, it's substantially higher. Um, Joe Rogan actually speaks quite a lot about it. He's you know a big advocate of, of marijuana and it's obviously legalized in, in the US. Mm-hmm. Talks very openly about smoking weed and whatnot. But he, he's also a big advocate for understanding the potential adverse effects of, of smoking weed. And, and one of the really big ones is psychosis. Um, and it's something which is surprising amount of people will go through and some will be unaware that they've actually gone through it. They, they just think that they're becoming really paranoid or delusion or, or kind of losing their mind. Mm-hmm. And they unfortunately don't get the medication or the professional help that they need. Um, for me, it was like, well, like the, the most crazy traumatic experience you could ever imagine in, in the sense of like, if, if you think about like, so there's another interesting book on this. And if anyone's listening to kind of look into is like uh, Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep. Oh yeah, he has a really interesting perspective. Yeah, and he he goes through the point around like if if we don't sleep for twenty four hours, we become we we become uh, we can't speak we become um, a small bit like uh, not delusional, but we start to kind of hear things. So, for example, Mm -hmm. you might think you hear someone knocking on the door, or you might think, or and you become quite forgetful. So, for example, you might leave your phone down by your bedside, and you'll think it's still in the bathroom or still on the kitchen table, and just little things. You're like, oh, did I move my phone there, or did I not, or have I set the alarm for tomorrow? After 24 hours, we get these really small little cues. After 36 hours, they start to become much more severe. So you'll often like start to hear things. So you might hear like someone saying your voice or you think you hear someone saying your voice like, oh, wait a minute, was that someone, someone call me? Mm-hmm. When obviously no one will have called you, it's, it's in your head. Um, and he just it kind of it goes into a bit more detail as to like your brain is a very, very delicate um, body in, in that sense. And mm-hmm. if it's, sleep is, is, is extremely important to restore your brain and, and, and your cognitive function and, and ability. Um, so if you're not sleeping and you're essentially abusing your body and your brain through drugs and alcohol, you're putting yourself in a very dangerous position. Um, and I guess I felt the full effects of that in the sense that I went through a very severe psychotic episode where I began, I became completely delusional. I was hearing voices, I was seeing things, um, and I was extremely paranoid, uh, as in to the extent that, you know, the situation in my mind was that either I was going to be murdered um like physically fully thought that i was going to die or i was going to spend time in prison and you know i had done nothing wrong like generally well mm-hmm. apart from partying and, and and doing you know some some illegal substances that i maybe shouldn't have been doing um you know from a, a larger standpoint i had done nothing on a large scale that would inf- you know con- conjure any any form of of, of wrongdoing but in my head, I'd, I'd, I'd mustered up a situation that I was under severe threat. I was under severe danger and I was, you know, something bad was going to happen to me if I didn't get out of this situation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it almost it sounds like a movie. I often relate to like Shutter Island, for example. Shutter Island actually really well personifies mm-hmm. um, the experience of psychosis. Um, and that's experience where the, the, the main character who Leonardo DiCaprio thinks he is, in a sense, uh, an undercover detective in this uh, on this island, when in fact he's an inmate or a patient within the mm-hmm. within the ward, um, and I think that probably puts it into the most real life scenario as to like how delusional you can become and how delusional your thoughts are versus what's actually happening. And I guess, you know, I was to be honest, extremely lucky that I managed to make it hospital because I I remember after probably two or three days of experiencing these like really severe symptoms, I, at this stage I hadn't drank at all, hadn't done anything in three in like two or three days, but I was like wasn't able to sleep. I was extremely delusional, paranoid, and 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 like 
psychotic in 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 a sense um i literally was i, I like remember it vividly to this day i was like standing on a, on a on a fifth floor balcony um and being like this needs to end like this needs to stop um and and for me in my head at the time the only option was to was to jump off the balcony and it was mm. you know when i think back about it now this it's it's quite upsetting for me to think that i would consider doing that um mm-hmm. especially considering the circumstances of how my dad left the world and, and and how much trauma that left my whole family and my mom in particular and to think that i would even consider that that avenue of taking my own life is you know i'm in some ways embarrassed and ashamed about that because it's you know it's 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 just a horrible thing to consider but that's i guess the severity of the thoughts in my head of how negative and how depressive the thoughts were mm-hmm. it i just simply wanted to end I, I i wanted nothing more than just literally for it to end and, and my most rational thought process in that time which was you know in a very very challenged headspace was to jump off a fifth, fifth floor balcony and just end it all there and then um yeah. and yeah like very very traumatic time and like i guess i was very very lucky in the sense that one of my friends managed to, I guess, speak to me and, and ask me, look, mate, do you want to go and see a doctor? Do you want to go and, like, you're clearly not doing too well the last few days. Like, they've been looking out for me, but they also didn't really know what was going on. Mm. Um, and, yeah, luckily I, I was brought to hospital and they initially were, like, doing blood tests to see was there anything physically wrong with me. Nothing obviously came back. And eventually one of the nurses kind of seeing me and was like, okay, he's clearly in not a very stable mental mental state right now. Mm-hmm. Um and they put me to sleep and um, yeah injected me with with some form of uh so, some form of tranquilization and wow. uh put me to sleep i remember waking up the next day on a on a fully strapped into a into a hospital bed arms and legs and braces um and you know it's 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 very scary to think about it. and it really is the kind of stuff that people kind of imagine seeing in movies um mm-hmm. where it's like you know a mental patient who is uh you know and i wasn't out of control i was all i was very very calm and i was never any danger to anyone else mm-hmm. um but i was just extremely afraid and anxious i remember just like being like crippled in over myself like hunched over shaking anxious and just like fearful that something bad was going to happen to me um and you know, look very, very luckily, they they looked after me very well. I spent upwards on a week, maybe ten days, in a psychiatric ward in Spain, um, and you know, they they quickly kind of diagnosed that I was going through a psychotic episode. They knew what medication to put me on in order for me to kind of ease the symptoms of it, and it took a few days to kind of uh, for the severe symptoms to kind of reside and, and, mm-hmm. and kind of go down. And but even then, I was I was fearful. I remember thinking that the like the doctors were were undercover agents and were thinking mm. that the the nurses were were kind of waiting for me to say something before they would you know do something negative to me and i felt you know still if, i remember thinking the inmates that were or the, not the inmates the, the other patients that were in the, the ward um i remember thinking that they were like inmates in a prison and i was in this some form of a juvenile detention center um and just all these crazy kind of delusional thoughts that were going through my head at the time yeah. um and yeah just a mad mad experience to be honest kevin it was a, a really really Jeez. transformative time in my life but also like a crazy fucked up um experience well i like Ogi geez i mean it's um first of all thanks for sharing and thanks for like sharing the details because i think like i think although like society is coming around to it it's very difficult for people who obviously haven't experienced it or mental illness to understand what you were going through and like you know, I can't say that I was ever at the extent or the paranoia and, and the the new like the nuances of of your experience. Like it's 
it's it's it's for me to hear it it's it's really eye opening but you know I, I definitely relate in a lot of terms where it's just like you just don't really see any way out other than to end it it gets it does get to a point where do you just you know you just think if this is the way life is going to be you know what is the point in continuing it um but i mean jeez it's a th- thank god like thank god there was enough hindsight in your friend to to bring you to somebody and speak to somebody but geez, I can't, it's it's just enlightening to hear like what that experience is like for you i mean wow it's that's that's tough jeez yeah, no, crazy, crazy time, man, to be honest. Like, and look, it's it's one of those things, I'll, I'll go into a little bit more detail in, in terms of what happened after that as such, but it's a massive learning for me in life in general. Like, you know, you, you, you can't put your body through that kind of abuse and expect to not react in a negative way. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, for, for any kind of people that might be listening in the sense, like there's a lot of, I know a lot of people in Ireland in particular rely very heavily on alcohol. A lot of people engage That's in true. drug use. A lot of mm-hmm. people, you know, are very close to these these situations, but maybe don't realize it. And I think it's something just to be very, very aware of that nobody is invincible. Nobody is, you know, you often hear people like, oh, they can handle it or they can, you know, it's like, it's complete bullshit. Where Everyone a, is at just as much risk. Almost, yeah, like it's a badge, yeah, badge of, honor. of honor. Like, yeah, like, oh, yeah, I can handle my drink. I can drink twice as much as you and I'm still standing, you know, like it is, it is unfortunately like, and, and like, uh, like I'll hold my hands up now and again, like being uh, Irish in America, it's like, oh, I can handle my drink compared to Americans. It's like, what am I do? Like, not, I'm not a big drinker, it isn't, but you still have that attitude. Like it's something to be proud of, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a way, it's really is a, a way of masking how you're feeling or to overcome anxieties and social settings, whatever it is. There's, there's not a whole lot of positives from alcohol. It's not to say I'm not, I'm, I'm drinking and not judging anybody, but I think in Ireland, unfortunately, there is a, an unhealthy, very unhealthy um, attitude towards alcohol. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Well, that's all we have time for for this week's episode. I hope that Ogie's story resonated with you as it did Kevin and I. Specifically for me, I really got this encouragement to not let my past determine my future. And so hopefully something resonated with you. And if it did, share this with somebody else. Remember, it's better to give than to receive. And make sure you come back next week because Ogie is going to share some of the tips and strategies he's incorporated to make him a successful leader, speaker, and entrepreneur. Next week is fire, so you don't want to miss it. Thank you for tuning in. And please give us some feedback, rate us, and share with a friend. We'll catch you next week.